Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 83, October 17th to October 23rd, 1862. Last week, we covered the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky in its entirety. Along with Antietam and Corinth, the disastrous fall for the Confederacy has come to a close. So close to victory had they been when Lee crossed into Maryland, but the fortunes of war had reversed that quickly. This week, we will talk about a few things. We need to head out to Missouri and talk about the Palmyra Massacre, as it has come to be known. I also want to take some time to talk about the significance of the Battle of Antietam, giving that battle its full due. Speaking of Antietam, this is a great time to plug Patreon content, as I have mentioned throughout the month of October here. We have another picture slideshow, and I actually think it complements very well with the episode that we did on Antietam. There's a lot of things that I talk about in the slideshow that maybe I didn't get to cover in the episode, and there's also some great illustrations of some of the things that I did talk about in the episode. So if that sounds like something that interests you, that's very similar to what we did with P. Ridge and some of the Seven Days Battles that is on the Patreon site, there's a link to that in the description. And of course, your contribution is greatly appreciated. I do want to mention also that just as a quick aside, that there are several different ranges of the Patreon, uh, but really, you could have an extra episode a month for just as little as a dollar contribution. So check that out once again if that sounds like something that would interest you. Let's head first this episode to Indian Territory to fight the Battle of Fort Wayne. We need to head to Missouri to pick up on things there. When last there, we had the first Confederate offensive since Pea Ridge, which had some great success at the Battle of First Newtonia. This victory allowed for the rebels to have a foothold in the southwest portion of the state. Thomas Hindman would further plan on offensives to make more gains, not satisfied with just a foothold. Colonel Cooper was instructed to stay put with his men while the remainder under Hindman concentrated for a strike into Missouri proper, possibly heading to retake Springfield. In the meantime, James Blunt was not idle and had gathered a troop strength of some three brigades, mostly made up of cavalry and infantry from Kansas, as well as the Indian Home Guard, who had fought at Newtonia. Overall, he probably had some 3,500 men, although I have seen some estimates as high as 5,000. Cooper was estimated to have some 7,000 at Newtonia, but this is also probably an exaggerated number. With federal forces closing on the Missouri town, they were almost able to trap the Confederates, but Cooper was able to successfully escape back into Oklahoma. Having been ousted from their advanced position, Heinemann was still wishing to potentially use Cooper. 
John Schofield's department was gearing up for further incursions into Arkansas, so Thomas Heinemann wanted a spoiling attack on that operation. Cooper would swing out and threaten Kansas, which seemingly is always on the agenda in this area of the war so far. Remember, Ben McCullough also has that idea in mind, even as early as 1861. James Blunt would move his three brigades in a chase of Cooper so as to eliminate this threat. Blunt's men were better armed and were combat veterans at this point. Samuel Cooper had been forced to disperse his troops, so he did not have his full number. Only some 1,500 men, and most of them were the Cherokee, Creek, Chickasaw, and Choctaw mounted rifles. On October 22nd, Blunt would drive in the rebel pickets near a place called Old Fort Wayne. Rather than run, the Confederates would form into a line of battle. An artillery duel would ensue, the Federals able to exert their superiority in that department and silence the enemy guns. A general assault would begin with not much resistance on the part of the rebel troops, who would break cannon and supply were left to the victors, Blunt having successfully used his superior numbers and arms to defeat Cooper and keep Kansas safe for the time being. A pursuit was mounted, but the Federals would eventually give up, the Confederates able to escape into the southern part of the territory. Conditions on the battlefield were reportedly quite cold. I've seen some accounts even stating snow during or after the engagement. As a result of the battle, Blunt would actually receive a promotion. During Fort Wayne, there were approximately 150 Confederate casualties, compared to some 14 for the Union. Hindman would not be deterred. Although it is only late October, we will soon begin his campaign that will end up in the Battle of Prairie Grove, which is the second larger battle in northwest Arkansas that you probably have never heard of. We have waited quite a long time to talk about why Antietam is important, and maybe some of you have already guessed. Antietam, Corinth, and Perryville, all being Union victories, is the end of the Confederacy. My personal theory is that 1862 is the most important year of the war, specifically between June to September. This may not be the most controversial statement, but the seven days turns the war into a different kind of animal. As a result, the North realizes it must wage a hard war. Second Manassas takes the Confederacy to the breaking point, and Antietam extinguishes the flame. Antietam, for me, is very important, and that is why I maybe am not quite so harsh on George B. McClellan. Yes, he does the wrong thing in not finishing off Lee's army, but compare that to the peninsula and there is a real difference. First, let me get into why the invasion happened and why it failed, and then two reasons why it helps to decide the fate of the country. 
we talked about how Lee moves into Maryland without approval of the Confederate president. Maryland and Kentucky turning to the Southern cause is important, but probably not a realistic goal. Western Maryland does not contain as many sympathizers when compared to the East. In addition, most of those who would join the Army have already done so, in a Maryland or Virginia unit that's already in the Army of Northern Virginia. But there is something else. The Confederates don't get very many recruits because at this point they are hungry and ragged. There are several accounts from civilians that talk about how they smell terrible. It's not really a great recruiting pitch to be emaciated and filthy. Not that I have ever personally tried it in the time I spent as a recruiter, but I would imagine probably wouldn't turn out so well. This sorry condition of the rebels actually also hurts Lee. Straggling in the Maryland campaign is a real issue. Many of the dropouts are due to fatigue caused by starvation. There is an alternative narrative that if Lee has his whole army with him, it's a different kind of battle, and I tend to agree. Just remember how he uses the entirety of his force and maybe could still have been destroyed afterwards. But here's the thing. If Lee is facing these tall odds, why did he decide to fight? Why not just head back over the Potomac and fight another day? Two big reasons are going to stop Lee from doing the smart move and pulling back to a better defensive position. First, and one of these things that we usually cite with Antietam is foreign intervention. Battlefield success, combined with the Trent Affair, most likely would have led Britain to get involved. We already know that Napoleon III was looking to jump in as well. Letters indicate that England was preparing to recognize the Confederacy and tried to bring a peaceful conclusion to the war. Now Lincoln would point out, and rightfully so, that the early success in 1862 is all but forgotten after the Seven Days, and this would be fair. Remember, there is a lot of press coverage, especially in the East. Lee has defeated the large army of McClellan, which was well documented. Colorful raids into Tennessee and Kentucky have occurred, Pope has been smashed, and the war taken to the north. If Lee can operate for an extended period on northern soil, it may expedite the process. The British Empire, of course, has interest in cotton, and one of the big things they point to Confederate delegates is that, despite the number of ships getting out through the blockade, they are still not getting any cotton. I personally think that there is a fascination with the underdog that exists even back in the 1860s. I think we can even look back at, say, Roman times, to the gladiators and realize everyone loves a good story. Despite the slave status of the gladiators, their position was envious. And yeah, I know that's kind of a stretch, but look elsewhere throughout history. Thermopylae, the Alamo, Agincourt, all of these are famous incidents where you can't help but feel for the side that has the odds stacked against them. Is it so far-fetched that the British government feels for the Confederacy in this case? This is definitely some food for thought, but just know that there is never going to be a closer point for Davis to receive good news from across the pond. Here is something else we don't really think about, and something I think is lost if you are a casual observer of the war. 
there are all kinds of politics at play. Remember that as the war drags on, there is a movement led by peace Democrats in the North just to end things peacefully. McClellan is probably one of those peace Democrats. He wants to win, but he does not want to wage the harsh kind of war that is necessary. Of course, this is why Pope gets put into the game, because he is very much opposite. The longer that Lee stays in the North, the more Democrats could potentially gain in the midterm elections. Congress could take the funding away from the war effort, making Lincoln helpless. You have highlighted already that the current administration is benefited greatly by the lack of Democrats, especially the absence of the southern states in the House and Senate. If Lee can continue to fight and move the campaign deeper into Pennsylvania, then this possibility also moves closer to a reality. Britain getting involved plus a lack of willpower to continue the war was a two-for-one for the frugal Lee that he could not pass up. Not exactly sure of the buying practices of Bobby, but it sounded good when I wrote it. The war changes even more with the introduction of the Emancipation Proclamation. Even though this document did not free all of the slaves, it made the war about transformation. There was no going back to the way things were. I think we have documented already there are individuals who thought that once the Confederate States came back into the fold, then the status quo would be returned. This was very plainly an effort to appease the Republicans, but also framed in the sense that it was necessary to end the war. For that reason, then, there would be support for Lincoln and this decision, unfortunately not based on moral grounds. But it would be a beacon of hope for the enslaved population that were living in occupied territory as well as the Confederacy proper. Refugees would flock to the areas in the control of federal forces. These escapees, as well as the already free population, would add to the Union war effort. There would soon be regiments formed who would fight alongside their white comrades. Many more former slaves served as camp followers, performing menial tasks for their liberators. In some places, they would contribute to the war effort by helping to build fortifications. Overall, we can see this was a step in the right direction for the nation. I do not think that citizens at the time were aware of how different the war would become after President Lincoln decided to announce this proclamation, but in hindsight it is clear that prior there was a different flavor, preservation of the Union. Still going to be the goal, preservation of the Union, but obviously there is going to be a different way to get there. Moving forward, we'll understand that the war is now about making a new nation, a new union. Just as a quick aside, I do want to continue to talk about Antietam, but I'm going to probably wait until a future episode here to talk about George B. McClellan and his performance during the war. So stay tuned, and we might get into a little bit more about Antietam here in a future episode. On October 18, 1862, we have an event known as the Palmyra Massacre that involves John Porter and John McNeil, who have already been introduced during our smaller-scale actions in Missouri. 
Now in September, Porter and his guerrillas raided Palmyra. In the course of that action, they took a prisoner, a citizen who was known as a Union sympathizer, Andrew Alsman. Alsman was taken from his home and traveled some distance with the raiders before Porter considered him a liability and set him free. Alsman was not too keen on being released and was given a detail to escort him back, but was never seen or heard from again. McNeil would order the return of Alsman, or there would be 10 Confederate prisoners executed. This is actually an excerpt that was posted in the paper. Palmyra, Missouri, October 8, 1862. Joseph C. Porter. Sir, Andrew Alsman, an aged citizen of Palmyra, and a non-combatant, having been carried from his home by a band of persons unlawfully arrayed against the peace and good order of the state of Missouri, and which band was under your control. This is to notify you that unless said Andrew Alsman is returned unharmed to his family within 10 days from date, 10 men who have belonged to your band and unlawfully sworn by you to carry arms against the government of the United States and who are now in custody will be shot as a meet reward for their crimes, among which is the illegal restraining of said Alsman, his liberty, and, if not returned, presumably aiding in his murder. Your prompt attention to this will save much suffering. Yours, W.R. Strachan, Provost Marshal, General District, Northeast Missouri. I read that because, and guerrillas are another thing that we will get in probably in a later episode, but I read this because they posted in the paper that they're looking for this man to be returned. And that's probably not something that you see too many times in war where, or at least not regular warfare, where you're posting in the paper and then that's how you're communicating with your enemy, right? Well, Missouri is very pro-Confederate, or at least has a lot of Confederate support. So the strategy here is that there's going to be somebody out there who is aiding these irregular soldiers, and they're going to be either giving him this paper or telling him that this was what was in the paper. So it is an interesting illustration of how the war in Missouri is unfolding. But Porter may not have seen this posting. What is more than likely accurate, though, is that Alsman was dead, having made quite a few enemies amongst his pro-Confederate neighbors and the raiders riding with Porter. It is thought that he was taken into the woods and killed. A skull that perhaps belonged to Alsman was found near where this event may have happened. Without the return of the prisoner, ten Confederates were selected and executed by firing squad even though none of them were actually involved in the raid. One of the condemned was actually able to pay his way out of the execution, an action which brought charges against the Union colonel commanding. This is just another example of the type of conflict that's being waged in Missouri. You might say that, you know, why does this guy accepting a bribe to get this guy off of the execution block, right? Well, there are a lot of home guard, militia, 
even conscripts that we will talk about later in the war who are not really thrilled to be fighting at all and certainly not thrilled to be fighting their neighbors and potentially having a target on their backs by their community and by people who even when the war is over are going to ride up to their house and kill them right that's probably something that we don't have to worry about in the modern day but that's a realistic fear of some of these individuals who are in Missouri so there could be scenarios like this where they're either if not directly aiding guerrillas at least they're looking the other way or maybe even say on patrol they're not really trying too hard to look for these guys because they don't want to find them let's go ahead and call it a day for now we have had a few events it had been a little removed but we have definitely had a nice revisit of the significance and impact that the battle of antietam had and will continue to have in our story moving forward as i kind of mentioned in the episode here do not think that we are done talking about Antietam because we will probably head back there soon. We also had a battle in the Oklahoma Territory. Colonel Samuel Cooper has his luck run out at the Battle of Fort Wayne. We also had an unfortunate incident in Missouri in the Palmyra Massacre or executions. We have often talked about Missouri and the nature of the guerrilla war there. And we are going to visit that in a future episode and cover in full, don't you worry. Next week, we have two smaller scale actions, as well as our wrap of Corinth and Perryville. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>